This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 233. Today's episode is all about how sorrow and longing make us whole. Whatever we are experiencing internally, it has a way of communicating itself to the people around us. People are attracted to slash want to work with people who are in that state of emotional grounding, who have made sense of the different things that have happened to them in their lives. And I I think that's why, you know, the phrase toxic positivity has become a kind of cliche almost in our culture, but there is something kind of toxic about excess positivity. And the thing that's toxic about it is that it's not truthful, you know, and, and we do not like not being told the truth. We don't like it. We rebel against that. We also don't want to live in a culture that's telling us not to tell the truth. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening for the first time, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people. Because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I'm excited to share a review from Mitt Lurk, who says, Genuinely healing. I've been listening to this podcast for a few months now, and every single episode has been so unbelievably helpful. The insight Melissa has and the authenticity is palpable. I'm grateful for this podcast and what it is helping me heal and supporting my growth. I love this podcast. Thank you so much, Melissa. Well, thank you so much. I am just grateful to be a small part of your journey. So thanks for taking the time to light up my whole week. And now onto the show. Life can be so painful. We get hurt, we're scared, we lose people, we start over. So we feel the pain of fear or loss, grief or longing. And I don't think anyone ever adequately warns us that this is what we're in for. I still remember the first time I felt deep pain, rejection. I was bullied in middle school by one person who turned a lot of people against me. But I remember sobbing at home, feeling like my insides were in knots, like my life was over, like this hurt represented me. Little did I know, that was just the beginning. Then came breakups, cheating, rape, deaths. And as each new pain came, I remember just wondering, why me? Why this way? Why does it have to hurt so badly? In my mid-twenties, I started to recognize that within all of it, there was some sort of guidance. I was seeking, reading, moving, trying new things, meeting new people. The problem is, it's usually pretty hard to see just how beautiful the guidance is until you're coming out on the other side. 
I was doing all these things, but I was bringing my pain, just sort of stored away within me, hoping that no one would notice. I remember reading somewhere that the highs of your joy are equal to the depths of your pain. Like maybe just experiencing a new level of sadness or hurt or sorrow unlocks your capacity to feel even greater. But it took me a long time to really internalize this. It took me about the time that it took to start feeling the highs again. I think I was just expecting that the equal level of highs would happen faster. But looking back, I think that all that time burying my pain just kind of kept it there or kept me there rather than feeling the pain and allowing it to move through me and integrate. Once I started to actually feel the pain and process it and allow it to move through, it's like I made room for other emotions and experiences and complexities. I made room for the other side of the spectrum. And that pain changed me. It changed my perspective on life. It changed the way I valued my relationships. It changed the depths of what I feel. It changed the person that I was. And now, looking back, to change what had happened to me would change the person that I became. And I'm not willing to give her up for anything. But the hard part is getting to the other side of that pain. So today we're talking about the transformation that happens when we experience sorrow and longing. And our guest is Susan Kane. You may recognize her as the author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which spent eight years on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into 40 languages. She also has a TED Talk that has been viewed 40 million times. And her new masterpiece is a book called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. So three key things we will learn are the powers of a bittersweet, melancholic outlook, why our world is so blind to the value of our pain, and how to transform grief into healing, creativity, and peace of mind. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Susan Kane to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. So what led to your research around the transformation that happens when we experience sorrow and longing? Well, this book actually started because in some ways I was trying to answer at first a kind of relatively small question of why I and so many people I know love sad music so much. Like, What is it about sad and minor key music? 
that makes you feel not really sad at all, but rather like a sense of joy and love and um, a kind of longing for a more perfect and beautiful world. And, um, and I started investigating like that particular question, but I started to realize in doing that, that there's something about that combination of happiness and sorrow that, that, that music holds, you know, the, the idea that that joy and sorrow, that bitter and sweet are forever paired in this world, you know, that, that that's what life is, is a, a combination of those things. I started to realize that there's a whole tradition around that truth, you know, and it's in all our religions and our artistic and literary traditions. And that bittersweetness is one of the best keys that we have to creativity and to connection with each other. And yet we are living in a culture that is telling us you're not to talk about any of this. Like you're only kind of supposed to talk about the joy side of the equation. And I started realizing that we're really missing out on a huge swath of our humanity um, when we won't look at the at, at the full human experience. Why do you think it is that we do have this well, it's almost like an intellectual aversion to diving into something that's more bitter. Because as you said, we all feel all of these feelings. We're multidimensional. And if I totally understand how some days I just want to turn on the notebook and cry. It's like, I'm happy, but I just want to cry. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, why do we love Adele so much? Like, yeah. really, why do we when she's talking about her songs are, are are very plaintive in nature. And I was actually, I have a bittersweet playlist that I um, that I created to go along with the book. And I was just listening to it today as I was doing some work and one of her songs came on and she literally uses the word bittersweet in the song, which I hadn't even noticed before. What happened in our culture is that in the 19th century, especially, there began this kind of division of humans into winners and losers. And this happened because suddenly we became a kind of culture of business. And during that century, we kind of went from e economic boom to bust to boom to bust. And so you would see people like losing their fortunes or failing to make them in the first place. And, and the question started to arise of like, when someone fails in business, is it because of like, did they get unlucky or is there something inside them that predisposed them to failure? And increasingly, the answer that people settled upon was the idea that there was something inside them that kind of made them a loser. So literally that word loser used to just mean someone who lost. You know, it was just like a matter of fact statement, but, but it turned into a moral judgment of your being. And of course, the more you start looking at your fellow humans that way, the more you want to do everything possible to not be a loser, right? And to be one of the winners. So you start shunning anything that has to do with loss, with sorrow. Like you never want to express any of those things because to express them is to mark yourself as a loser in this way. And so we became this culture that became allergic to and aversive to talking about that side of life. But of course, what that means is that we're walking around not telling the truth because to be human is to experience joy and sorrow. And you can't get through this life without experiencing loss, whether, you know, in the form of breakups or bereavements or whatever it is. And um, to tap into that is one of the best ways we actually have of connecting with each other. And yet we are, we're sealed off from that 
means of connection because we so much avoid this dimension of, of human experience. I relate to that sort of demonizing something that I'm trying to change out of. And it's funny that you mentioned that because just the other day I had this calling to reach out to a friend that I lost about five years ago. And at the time I was having a lot of, I was going through a lot of transformations and, and saw kind of who I wanted to be and which habits were still there. And this friend had been with me all through my twenties when I was partying like a maniac. (laughs) And at the time I had gotten married by now and, and I, like I said, I was just developing more healthy habits. And there was this argument that we got into that I totally did not understand for the longest time. I remember sitting there thinking, I don't understand how you're taking offense to this, blah, blah, blah. Well, I started to realize just recently I was reflecting in meditation and I kind of saw this way that I was demonizing a lot of the things that she was doing because I didn't want to do coke at parties anymore or (laughs) drink Mm -hmm. heavily on a Tuesday anymore. And so even though that's not what the argument was about, I was like, I cannot deny that there was probably feelings that were seeping out or maybe a tone that I had, or maybe a little bit of, I was better because she was doing these things. And the reason that I bring that up is because I've thought if I went back in time, how could I have more compassion about that? Is that the right way to move through things? It's still how I move through things sometimes. I have to be like, nope, gluten is the worst thing in the world if I never <laughs> want to have gluten again. Uh-huh, so given uh-huh. that that's sort of what we did with these with these multifaceted feelings, is that a healthy way to try to separate yourself from something like that? Or is there a better way to transcend yeah, I mean, okay. So first of all, none of us um, are saints, so you know we're never going to get it all right with our friends or with anybody else. So I would give yourself a break on it. But to, or to answer that question, I think it's very helpful to um, to try to understand someone without forming an opinion about what they're doing. You know, to kind of like go into any interaction with that in mind of like, oh, huh, okay, well, what's driving my friend, and what makes our different experiences? Why is she still choosing one path and I'm choosing another? What made that happen? And to try to answer those questions without any judgment or opinions attached to them, but simply to just gain the answer to the question and that's it, just the understanding. Invariably, when people are making self-destructive decisions, invariably there is some degree of pain that's informing it in one way or another. Um, So to be open to that is also really helpful. And in the book, I talk about how predisposed we are as humans to do this. Like we think of compassion as being a kind of like Sunday school of virtue that maybe it's not even real or, you know, we have to like hit ourselves over the head to remember it. But in fact, humans are are designed to be this way. And we know this because there's been this groundbreaking research that I talk about in the book just in the last few years, um, where this amazing psychologist named Dacher Keltner started, he he like tracked what he calls the compassionate instinct in humans. And he found that, for example, we all have a vagus nerve, which is the biggest bundle of nerves in our body. It's so fundamental to who we are. The vagus nerve controls all of our breathing and digestion. What it also does is it reacts when we see another person in distress. So it's like before you have a time, even have time to think about it consciously, your vagus nerve, which is so fundamental to who you are, it's it's helping you breathe. Your vagus nerve is also reacting when it sees 
someone else suffering and it makes you feel like you want to help them. So I think there's a way that we can understand that this is part of who we are naturally, even though we've kind of turned it off to some degree in our culture. And to tap into that, you know, in situations like the one you're talking about with your friend, um, to come at her from that place. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. It took me five years, but I did reach out to her just this week. And I actually wrote this message to her and I was like, I just was reflecting back on five years ago and blah, blah, blah. But I think there's a lesson in that where I've learned too, with a lot of my transformations, that if I'm beating myself up and if I'm beating up any aspect of that journey, that's me beating myself up in some way, even if I don't see that way, then it's almost harder to transform because I'm holding on to this this piece of shame. And it reminds me of how we're 
like interpersonal skills in general, where if we bring in that receptive listening and we practice with other people, we can probably do that better for ourselves as well. Because like we said, there we are multifaceted and we might be looking at something as the worst thing in the world or a terrible feeling right now. But if we allow ourselves to see it through a different lens, we might find that there's a lot of value in it. Such as I know that you talk about there's actually a value in sadness. What is that value that you find in feelings that can sometimes be overwhelmingly bad? <laughs> yeah. The central lesson that I would say that you take away when if, if you like look at the bittersweet tradition and all our religions and in literature and history is the idea that when something painful happens, we kind of have two choices of what to do with it. And door number one is kind of as you were saying to you kind of disavow it and you end up taking it out on yourself or on other people. That just happens naturally. But the other thing that we can do with it is try to turn it into beauty of some kind. Like not not to deny how painful it is, but to take it and transform it into something else. So so sadness is actually the heart of our creative impulse. Um, and it's also the heart of our most pro-social organizations um, and actions are usually created by somebody who has felt a wound of some kind and is trying to heal that wound in themselves and in other people. Almost all, like there, almost any organization that you look at that you've ever admired in your life that you think is doing good things for humanity, almost always you will find it was founded by somebody who it's called a wounded healer. You know, that's that's a kind of archetype that's been with us for thousands of years. Almost always those organizations are created by, by wounded healers. And the same thing is true with creativity. And I'll give you an example of this. There's this one study where the researchers took a group of people and they had them give speeches. And half of the speeches were given to audiences that were told in advance that they should react with a lot of applause. And half of the audience were audiences were told to react with like bored looks and you know disapproval. And so sure enough, the people after giving those speeches, they were either really happy if they got the good applause or really sad if they didn't. But then they were these people, these poor speakers, were also asked to, to make collages, which were then rated for creativity by a panel of artists. And the speakers who had given the speeches to the disapproving audiences, so they were like in a down mood, they made much more creative collages. And that was especially true for the ones who came in with a hormonal profile that showed that they were kind of emotionally vulnerable to begin with. So <laughs> this sounds like the cruelest experiment. Like I, you're emotionally vulnerable. Let's, <laughs> let's just screw with your mind. <laughs> I know. I, I have to say like, yeah, I actually wonder sometimes how these experiments pass the review boards. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, but I do think that this is something that we know instinctively, you know, when, when you hear your favorite musician or, you know, there's just this sense of art coming from some place that's attuned to the sensitivities of the world. And this applies to all of us. Like it does whether or not we're world famous artists, that's not the point. It's like our most creative impulses stem from this sensitivity. You hear so many times artists saying things like, I'm just turning this pain into words or, you know, I'm, I'm taking it to the studio or, or whatever it is. And it, and it does make so much sense. Even Mind Love was born out of a lot of the trauma or the hardships that I overcame. I'm not sure if I would have had the idea or the awareness or 
the growth to create something like this. So that does make a lot of sense. It is funny though, how we all have experienced some sort of hardship, some more than others. We know this about each other. We connect in these ways. It it amplifies our creativity, but still we long for this kind of perfection and we, we seek it in a lot of different things, whether it's in our relationships or I know in your book, you talk about how we kind of it's like the Garden of Eden, like this this perfect world. You know, maybe if we elect this person, it'll create the utopia on Earth finally that we've all been waiting for. Yeah. So, what does that have to do with our love of the sad songs and the and the rainy days, like you talk about? So, we need to understand whether we consider ourselves atheists or believers, secular or religious, doesn't matter. We are all beings who come into this world, like our our fundamental psychology. We're beings who feel that there is a more perfect and beautiful world out there somewhere. And in religion, we express this through the longing for the Garden of Eden or Mecca or Zion or the beloved of the soul. Um, In secular terms, we make movies about somewhere over the rainbow. You know, this is is fundamentally who we are um, to have that kind of dream. And and also to have a, a kind of a sense, it's almost like a sweet sorrow in us of feeling like we have been banished from the place to which we truly belong. And every so often we get glimpses of this place. Um, that's why we love music or like Olympic athletes the way they do, the, the way we do. It's because they're bringing us a glimpse of that like magnificent and perfect world. And we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. There it is. There's that world. Um, okay. So we, but we need to really understand this about our, ourselves because if we don't, it can harm our relationships because what happens when you enter into a new relationship, you feel like you've hit the Garden of Eden, you know, like you're there, especially during those moments of the first flush of a new relationship, you feel that way. And then, of course, you get to know your partner, you get to know yourself better, and you realize, oh, you know, he's not perfect, she's not perfect, I'm not perfect. If you don't understand this fundamental truth, you'll always be leaving behind something that was working as you search for the new Eden. And it's it's a complicated thing because this search for that more perfect and beautiful world is also the heart of our most creative and generative impulses. So it's like we need to channel it properly without letting it undo us. And we all have different ideas of what this perfection is. I'm reminded of John Lennon's Imagine, where it's like, you know, imagine all the people living. And then he gets to the point where it's like, imagine no possessions. And I'm like, all I think of is like, you will own nothing and be happy. And I was like, no. Right, 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 right. Yeah. (laughs) That is not my version of happy. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And, and and there is a real danger, not just to our romantic relationships, but to any kind of um, vision of a utopia here on earth, I think is is really dangerous because, you know, if you really believe that you can have utopia on earth, you'll kind of do almost anything to make it happen. And that's that's where humans get into trouble a lot of the time. Um, that's where a lot of evil happens from those good intentions towards utopia. So I came across in, I told you, I've been kind of exploring this bittersweet tradition for the last decade. And I came across a metaphor that I think is really helpful as a kind of like anti-utopian impulse, but a really good way to live. It comes from the Kabbalah, which is the mystical side of Judaism. And the idea is that 
all of creation at one point was an intact vessel, an intact and divine vessel. But at some point, the vessel shattered. And we're now living in the world after that breakage. So we're living in the broken world. But the shards of that vessel are scattered everywhere around us. And so what we can do in this world that we have, we can pick up those those divine light-filled shards wherever we see them. And you're going to see different ones from the ones that I see. You're going to pick up different ones from the ones I pick up. But we can all do that. So it's not... We're not thinking in utopian terms that we can actually put the whole vessel back together, but we are thinking that we can pick up a shard here and a shard there. And that keeps us, I think, suitably modest, but, but it also helps us, uh, it, it also helps us reach for the best side of ourselves and come to terms with the fact that, that there is more tragedy and evil in this world than we wish there were. Um, it's, it's a kind of way of living beautifully within that reality. And I love that because it reminds me of having a gratitude practice where the whole concept is that you start to look for things that you're grateful for. And the more that you do this, the more you, you're focused on these things that where you see the beauty rather than all the things that your life is missing or the things that you don't have yet or the things that other people have and you don't. And so you sort of train your mind to be yeah. constantly looking for gratitude and positive. But I know one of the things that you talk about is how sometimes our culture is almost obsessed with this toxic positivity where mm-hmm. we're just kind of overcoming these negative feelings. So where's the balance? How do you balance those two things where you are looking for the good, the beauty, the divine in the world, but you're mm-hmm. also honoring some of those harder, more complex emotions? To me, the um, the phrase that I bear in mind all the time is to just simply tell the truth of what it's like to be alive. That's it. Just tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, you will inevitably end up speaking about your sorrows um, or also telegraphing to other people that it's okay for them to speak about theirs. And you're also going to be speaking about the joys and you're going to be seeking for the joys because that's part of the truth too. So that's it. That's that's the whole that's the whole practice. Just tell the truth. Um, I love that. <laughs> it's so simple, but it's so <laughs> profound. I think we sometimes add extra layers to things when it's just like, no, no, what are you experiencing right now? Can you verbalize that? And the more that you practice that, I have found that when I'm actually able to give words to what I'm feeling, even if it feels really complex. And a lot of times what'll happen is somebody approaches me and tries to get it out of me before I'm ready. I I get into defense mode and I'm like running away. But if I have a moment to take a breath and I'm like, no, this is what I'm feeling. Those words give me power and not necessarily to that negative, or I'd rather call it a complex emotion, but it's like, oh, I can talk about this. This is manageable. There are words for this. I'm not so alone in this. Other people experience this too. And I'm able to see it from a different perspective just by taking it from swirling around in my mind to a simple expression. You know, it's so funny that you say that. One of the most helpful practices that I learned about through all this research that I wrote about in the book, it's called expressive writing. And it comes from the work of, of a psychologist at U Texas called James Pennebaker. And he basically found that the sheer act of, as you say, giving words to what you're feeling and then taking the time to write it down, but you don't have to write it down in any like beautifully crafted prose. You could just like, you know, scribble it out for two minutes in the morning, throw it away when you're done. That's it. 
the sheer act of doing that improves people's health. It improves their sense of well-being. He did this one study just as an example. There's a whole series of them. But he looked at this group of engineers who were in their 50s. They had been laid off from their jobs and they were really depressed and didn't think they could find new work. And he had half the group do expressive writing and the other half, he asked them to just like write down what they wrote, what they had for breakfast that morning. And he found that the group who did the expressive writing were significantly more likely to get hired a few months later. They had lower blood pressure. They had higher well-being. Like it's, it's almost astonishing you know, how, how extreme these results were. And it's all from the sheer act, I think, of doing what you're talking about, of actually putting, giving words to what you're feeling. And then what giving the words does is it also helps you to sort of reframe the experience and think about how you want to move forward after it. Even if you're not asking yourself in so many words to do that, that's what ends up happening. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I know for me, there's so many times where I will feel something and it just feels like it's stopping me in some way. And it's not until I talk about it with somebody or I I write it down or yeah. even sometimes I, I just use this app called Otter and I'll go on a walk and I just talk to the app and it transcribes it. It's like a journal entry. And I'm like, oh, oh wow. my gosh, I feel so much better <laughs> after this. Huh. But, but then I, I can go back and read it. And then it gives me an even new perspective because not only did I just voice it and I kind of heard it in, in myself and I like, okay, well, that 
I'm able to simplify it now that I get got it out. But then I read it back as though somebody else wrote it. And then I get a new perspective. And then maybe I share it with somebody and I get a new perspective. I don't always share it, but sometimes I will. <laughs> like there's uh-huh. this almost sounds like it was read or spoken by somebody else. And so all of these ways of accessing the information gives a new perspective about it. And one thing I was just writing about the other day was communication in general. I'm always fascinated by communication, understanding body language, like micro expressions mm-hmm. to from that to, you know, a new word to to describe a complex emotion. And I was reminded about a study of, about how people with lower vocabularies that had less words to use would actually have less emotions because mm. they if they didn't have a word for an emotion they would default to an emotion that they did know the word for which is right, why you find a right. lot of people maybe with difficult upbringings that didn't have uh, any sort of education they'll default to just anger and rage or something like that because that's what they know versus something more complex like melancholy mm-hmm. and it brings me to even child development how you you give words to children when they're trying to understand their emotions so they can map those two things in their mind. Mm -hmm. And what it all comes to is that when we can speak better or, and and that goes for being able to write what we're feeling or just the willingness to do that at all, then we think more clearly. So we're actually able to process our experience better. And so I'm surprised by the, the finding that you said about how people will even get hired more. But I wonder if that's because people see them as a more maybe put together person or like they, they'd be able to work with them better because they're, they're processing. How do you think those things are combined? Yeah. I think that, um, that working things through in the way that you were just talking about does help us to be emotionally more grounded. And then people can pick that up in us. It doesn't mean that it turns us into people who have never experienced sorrow and loss and longing. It means that it turns us into people who have been able to integrate those emotions into the broader scope of their lives. Um, And I really do believe that whatever we are experiencing internally, it has a way of communicating itself to the people around us. So, So from that point of view, it's not surprising that those guys got hired more readily because people are attracted to slash want to work with people who are in that state of emotional grounding um, and who have made sense of the different things that have happened to them in their lives. Um, yeah, there's something really appealing about that. And I, I think that's why, you know, the the phrase toxic positivity has become a kind of cliche almost in our culture. But, but the reason it got that way is... Um, there is something kind of toxic about, about excess positivity. And the thing that's toxic about it is that it's not truthful, you know, and, and we do not like not being told the truth. We don't like it. We, we, you know, we, we rebel against that. Um, and we, and we don't, we also don't want to live in a culture that's telling us not to tell the truth. That's very limiting and angering. Um, and that's, that's why we're seeing this uh, outcry, let's say, against that aspect of our, of our culture. But I, at the end of the day, it all comes down to me about truth. Yeah. Truth and, and beauty, you know, like the, the quintessential 19th century emotions of, of, of truth and beauty is the highest ideals. That's really what this whole bittersweet inquiry has, has uh, showed me. 
I am reminded of my early 20s. I really thought the definition of strength was just to not let my trauma get to me. And I overpowered it with positivity. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I was going around telling everyone to be happy over their sad or whatever. I wasn't trying to be toxic about it, but I was doing that on my own. And all that happened was that 10 years later, when I was allowing myself to feel, when I was actually beginning to process the things that had happened to me, I had to feel them all then. And I think Mm -hmm. that you have to feel them in order to process them. And just the other day, I was thinking about the word process because you hear it so often in the self-development world. It's like, what does that even mean to process it? But I was actually at the post office and I overheard somebody say, I haven't processed my mail all month. And I was like, processed your mail. All it really (laughs) means is to like take it and to figure out what to do with it. Like, where does this go? Do I need to pay it? That's a really interesting insight. Yeah. And so I was like, that's all that processing your emotions is, is to understand, like, find what it means to you. Feel it. Feel where it's guiding you. Is there a lesson from that? And it was just this moment where I'm like, I suddenly (laughs) understand on a whole new level how to process my emotions. Wow. That's a really, really interesting way of putting it. And so what happened after you did that? It's just the reminder, which I already knew, but giving myself space to feel when I'm going through something hard instead of trying to be like, well, it's a Tuesday and I've got interviews and I got to go do this. It's like, okay, well, actually I'm being guided that this is my biggest priority. And that's always the first step of processing it is finding the time and the space to give yourself to just sit with it and then ask yourself questions and see maybe what internal answers come up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes for me, uh, it always involves just sort of feeling it and and tuning into my body, not adding more power to the story, but just kind of feeling how this lands with me and then and then challenging some of the beliefs that it's creating so that it doesn't mm-hmm. create the situation when I was in my early 20s where I didn't realize how much those things affected me. I was just moving beyond them, not necessarily learning from them, but kind of developing a hard candy shell and distrusting right, people more right. and whatever. And so it will affect you regardless of if you process it or not but it that i that idea of processing allows me to have a little bit of more choice on who do i want to become and what does this new experience mean for me going forward mhm 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 huh, i really love that i love that and it seems like the evolution that you went through kind of mirrors what's been happening in the field of positive psychology recently as well Because, you know, when positive psychology started, the idea was then that psychology in the past had been talking too much about um, people's mental illnesses and that we hadn't been looking enough at what made people thrive and grow. And so that was a great insight. So this new field of positive psychology was born, but we ended up applying that. It was almost almost because of its name, we almost had no choice for a while. Like it ended up getting applied that like everything should be about being, you know, happy face all the time, super optimistic. And that that was, that that was the end goal of positive psychology properly practiced. But what's starting to happen now is there are psychologists who are talking about a second wave in positive psychology and one that allows in this mixed experience of bittersweetness, happiness, and sorrow together. Um, These states of longing for, uh, you know, for another dimension or for beauty or for truth or for love or whatever, um, all of it is now starting to get acknowledged. And so I think and hope that fewer people will um, go down that path of the hard candy shell that you just described in yourself. 
which is ultimately, you know, misleading. Definitely. I was recently doing an episode on grief and really how grief changes us. And I'm curious because there's cultures where we have, they have like a specific period of time where everyone expects them to mourn. You know, they wear all black, people take care of them. And then it's like three weeks only or something, 21 days, and then they, they move on. And then on, in some ways it's like, okay, well, what if that person's not ready to move on? In other ways, I'm like, okay, when my dad died, I sat in that grief for a really long time and -hmm. it became a part of who I am and not in the way that anything becomes a part of who you are. It became my excuse for why I wasn't doing the things that I had desired to do before. It it became an excuse to lose my desire, became an excuse to say where I was. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the idea of getting over grief, especially given that some of these harder emotions, more difficult emotions can lead to beautiful things such as creativity. I write a lot about grief in the book. There's a lot of different schools of thoughts to draw and a lot of different insights. And here, here's a couple. One is that the work of George Bonanno, who's at Columbia, um, he's actually found that most of us, not all of us, but most of us are far more resilient in the face of grief than we think we are or than we think we're supposed to be. Um, but in fact, you know, humans have evolved to withstand grief because grief has always been part of the human condition, right? There's no one who gets through this life without bereavement. The way we're resilient in its face is not to say, oh, we get over it, we move on. It's more that you can find yourself, you know, a, a few days after you lose someone, you can find yourself laughing at a joke and you could find yourself 50 years after you lose that person weeping at their memory. So it, it, it stays with us, but we have a way of, um, of assimilating it into our bodies, and into our experiences. And for most people, they will get to that state. Though I, I do want to say there are some people who experience just kind of a chronic grief that really does stay with them for a long time. But another framework for looking at it that I find incredibly useful comes from the work of Nora McInerney. And she talks about the difference between moving on and, and moving forward. And moving on is, as you were suggesting, it's kind of like, you know, a kind of imperative that we feel that yeah, you're supposed to get over it, you know, move past this, that's done, that was then, this is now. Moving forward is much, is much more elastic. It's saying, no, you're never going to get over this. The, the person you've lost is always going to be with you, but you're going to move forward in your life and you're going to carry them with you. Not that they're going to weigh you down, their memory, but they're always going to be part of you. The loss is always going to be part of you even as you move forward. So it's kind of like the ultimate and bittersweetness. It's like these two opposites can stay to get, can, you're going to hold these two opposites for the rest of your life, the sorrow at their loss and the moving forward into new joys. Those two things can coexist instead of telling ourselves, no, you got to leave it all behind. And that that's how you recover. This sounds crazy, but just the other day, I was talking to my husband about how, I'm not excited. Excited is the wrong word, but I'm interested to see how I might handle my next loss because I haven't lost anybody very close to me in actual death since I've done so much work on how to integrate an experience like that since I've helped mm-hmm. other people integrate experiences yeah. like that. And so the last loss I felt was just like this debilitating life is different. I can't believe this is happening to me. How am I going to move through this? 
And so it's going to be interesting to kind of have the self-awareness when it goes on to to feel the depth that's added to my life, even if it's coming from what feels like so much pain. And it kind of takes me back to what we were talking about in the beginning, how creativity is the product of sorrow and longing. And I think so much of what that does is it's, it's like, if you've never dealt with something difficult, how interesting are you really? Like, what can you really relate to? I think we have to have experienced something to fully relate to that, to have compassion on a certain Mm -hmm. level for that. And so we can't really speak to an experience that we haven't experienced at all, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it's a really interesting question you posed yourself. And I mean, I'll tell you from my experience, because I've been immersed in all these ideas for the last decade as I've been writing this book. And then in the last two years during the pandemic, I, I lost both my father and my brother to COVID. So so suddenly these things that I was writing about, I was also living at the same time. And I guess I'd say both things are true at the same time. Like on the one hand, the grief is just as raw, whether you've been spending your life processing these things or not. <laughs> you know, grief is grief. It's it's raw. And at the same time, there is a way in which um, to have worked through some of these things and the fact that, you know, to really understand in a deep way that human life is impermanent and that's the way it is and um, and to see the beauty in it, there is a way that, that that helps. It doesn't undo the rawness and yet it's helpful. It's like those two things are both true. When we ourselves are dealing with that sort of loss, then I feel like, I wouldn't say it's easier to process, but it's easier to find the steps forward or this, what do we need to do? You know, we feel it, we honor that person's life. Like what, everyone might be different on how they process that, but it's yours. And so you get to decide. Mm -hmm. But I know one of the questions that you bring up in your book is this idea of inheriting griefs from our parents and ancestors. Mm -hmm. And this has come up for some reason a lot. (laughs) I don't know why all of a sudden this month, this question has been brought up in so many schools of thought, whether it's epigenetics or whether it's like ancestral trauma. And so depending on if you're looking at it through like a spiritual lens versus a scientific lens, but it's Mm -hmm. still sort of the same thing. It's inheriting these griefs or the traumas from other people in our family. So if that's possible, is it possible? And how do we then take that to process it and transform it into healing and creativity? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this process um, in the book, and it happened. The reason I got interested in it is as part of my research. I went to this, went to this seminar um, on bereavement for bereavement counselors, and I'm not a bereavement counselor, but I was kind of there in a research capacity. And we all had to speak about different losses we had gone through, and I found myself um, really kind of weeping uncontrollably as I was describing my particular losses in a way that I hadn't expected. And as I talked to the um, as I talked to the incredibly gifted uh, facilitator who was running the program, his name is Simcha Raphael, and he calls himself a death educator. Um, as I was talking to him about it, he he kind of helped me see that I was experiencing not only the particular grief of the particular story I was telling, but also that I have a kind of inherited grief because I come from a family of Holocaust survivors, like on both sides. Um, you know, we lost just a ton of relatives. So that's what got me interested in this. And I, so I started really researching it and it's actually quite fascinating. Like the epigenetic evidence, which for people who aren't familiar with it, this 
the, the idea there is that someone experiences a, a grief or trauma in generation A, and that changes their genes in such a way that is then inherited by their future descendants. So it so literally the, their genetic profile changes through the generations. Um, and there are, are really fascinating studies that are starting to emerge that make it look like this is really so. Um, and some of them have been done with Holocaust survivors, but they've also shown it with mice. It's like amazing. They, there, there was one study where they took uh, male mice who had been traumatized and, and then bred them with non-traumatized females. And then they removed the males from the cages so that there was no way that those traumatized males could have been influencing their children in any kind of behavioral way because they weren't there anymore. But they found that the behavior that traumatized mice typically display, like they, they act in, in strange ways, that behavior continued like five generations later. So there was something in something that they were passing down, these male mice, to their descendants, even though they had had no interaction with their great, 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 great mice grandchildren. Um, so that's just one example of the kind of studies that have been done. If you think somebody listening right now, if you think you're someone who might have inherited that kind of an ancestral trauma or grief, it's very helpful to know, you know, and, and I talk about a lot of different techniques in the book, but it's helpful to know that you might have um, what some people call less absorbent shock absorbers. And maybe when events happen to you, you might feel them a little bit more deeply and know that and take care around that. But also kind of, again, carrying with you a dual understanding that you're going to honor your ancestors and, and acknowledge the pain that they've been through at the same time that you fully accept that their pain is not your pain. You know, that you're living in a different time, different place, different everything. And, and to keep those two truths held together close to you all at once. It's very healing. I do think that so much of my healing has just happened through the way I decide to look at something. And so I can mm. see how that would be so powerful. It, mm -hmm. it reminds me of when I understood that I'm an empath and how many years that I was like trying to fix emotions that weren't mine. Cause I'm like, yeah. something feels weird in this room. And then now I'm like, that's not mine. It's yours. Oh, yeah, you feel yeah. uncomfortable. I don't need to feel it. Right, <laughs> and right. so just being able to kind of have that discernment that this isn't mine to hold. Maybe I can, maybe that's a superpower. That's how I see it now where it's like, wow, that is amazing. Or I am blessed that I'm able to see or feel or access information based on this level of energy. Or it might be that it's amazing that I'm able to connect with my ancestors in this way, that I'm able to feel their pain, but I don't need to move with it or I don't need to allow it to hold me back. I can just, it can just be something that I carry with me that adds another dimension. Exactly. And so I, I love leaving listeners with an actionable practice, whether it's one of the techniques that you talked about or something to help them ground this information into their reality. Do you have anything that you can walk us through for the end of this episode? Yeah, sure. I would say um, to take whatever pain you find you can't get rid of and turn that into your offering, whether it's a creative offering or a healing offering, but whatever it is, um, that's one of the best things that you can do with your stubborn pains. And I will also tell you that... Um, you know, there's not only the bittersweet book, but I also created a bittersweet playlist that you can listen to. So um, if you come to my website, which is susankane.net, 
that's there um, and you can access that and various teachings and so on. I actually have that link already that I'll include right in the oh, show excellent. notes, okay. uh, along with all of the other links to your book, to your website, so listeners can get it right there. And thank you so much for everything that you've added to this conversation and just to this understanding of deeper levels of emotions that some of us might be turning off and, and maybe not uh, with positive results. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, what is your website and where's the best place to find your book? So um, my website is susankane.net. And I also have a newsletter that you can sign up for to just hear more like this. Um, and my book is really available anywhere where you buy your books, you know, whether that's your favorite indie store or Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, it's kind of all over the place. All the links for this episode are at mindlove.com slash 233. Your challenge for this week is to process some of the pain that you hold. And remember what we talked about in this interview. Processing is really just taking the time and the space to feel it so you can decide what to do with it. And the first steps of that is to feel it. Just feel it. One thing that I find personally important is to not spend too much time adding to the story. So, for example... There was a time when I thought that feeling the loss of my dad was to just sit there and ruminate. What would life be like with him here? What would he be like as a grandfather to my child? What would our relationship be like now? And I'm not saying that you should never think about those things. I really don't think there's a should for any of this. But I do believe that staying in the what ifs can only do so much. There's not a lot of healing that comes in the what ifs. Instead, focus on the sensations within your body. Maybe you feel a tightness in your chest. Maybe your eyes are burning. Maybe you feel a pit in your stomach. Maybe your body feels weak. What does that really feel like? What does it feel like to feel like your body is weak? Where is your body contracting or releasing? Where can you feel the movement of energy? And if you feel a pocket of sorrow, where you just want to burst, allow that to happen. Let yourself have a cathartic release of emotions. The more that you do this, the more you allow that pain to move throughout your body rather than staying stuck right there. And from that place, you can consciously choose, who is the person I want to become from this? What strengths have I gathered from this? How has this changed the way I value the relationships that are still here? How has this changed my outlook on life? And when you start to see the positives and lean into those, that's when the transformation really takes off. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right here on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash 233. If you'd love to support Mindlove, the best way to do that is by joining Mindlove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get a whole backlog of over 50 exclusive episodes only for premium members, along with meditations and other bonuses, plus ad-free listening, which is really cool, and sometimes early release. Other ways to support are by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And if you do, I just might read your review on the show. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. 
Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.